Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Welcome to That Said. I am Michael Zeldin. On today's show, our guests are Asha Rangappa and Glenn Kirshner. Asha is the legal and national security analyst at CNN. She is a senior lecturer at Yale University's Jackson Institute of Global Affairs and the former associate dean at Yale Law School. She served as a special agent in the New York division of the FBI specializing in counterintelligence investigations. She is a graduate of Princeton University, a Fulbright scholar, and holds a law degree from Yale Law School. Glenn is an MSNBC legal analyst and the host of the YouTube channel and podcast, Justice Matters. Glenn is a former federal prosecutor with 30 years of trial experience. He served 24 years in the U.S. Attorney's Office in the District of Columbia, and six years in the Judge Advocate General Corps. Glenn attended Washington and Lee University, where he was a first-team All-American football player in 1983, and he graduated with honors from the New England School of Law in Boston, where he was named a trustees scholar. Glenn, Asha, welcome to That Said. Asha, first question to you. What is the theory of prosecution in the Weisselberg Trump Organization indictment for the Manhattan DA's office? So what the indictment lays out is basically a scheme between Weisselberg and the Trump Organization to basically underreport his total compensation. So Weisselberg is is awarded a salary at a particular amount, somewhere around $900,000, but he's only officially paid this salary uh, up to a certain amount, let's say like 500000 The rest of it is being provided to him in other forms. For, so for example, uh, the Trump Organization was paying for an apartment in New York. They gave him a personal Mercedes uh, to use. Um, they paid for his children or grandchildren's uh, private school tuition. Um, and all of this was off the books. And both Weiselberg and the Trump Organization benefit tax-wise from this arrangement. On Weiselberg's side, he is only reporting his official salary on his W-2 to New York State Taxes and uh, the IRS. So he's not paying taxes on all of these other forms of compensation that he's receiving. And he's actually um, recouping tax refunds based on a deflated income that he's reporting uh, to New York State and to the IRS. And then on the Trump organization side, they aren't paying payroll taxes um, on all of the, these other alternate forms of compensation. Um, the, another key here is that for at least some of these charges, there is a specific intent requirement, which means that you have to know that the practice that you're engaging in is in violation of the tax code. In other words, you know, it can't be a mistake, inadvertent, for example. And because Weisselberg was the, the CFO of the Trump organization, he was the one managing all the books. Um, he really has no defense on, on that front. Um, and then finally, I would say that what the indictment lays out is really a long-term pattern and practice of this behavior. In other words, this is not just a one-off, he forgot to declare, you know, some extra amount of compensation one time. I mean, this is, this is happening on an ongoing basis. It's clearly, uh, a way that, you know, the, the organization and Weisselberg have, you know, have agreed to, um, structure 
uh, a lot of the payments that that are being made to him. Does that sum it up mostly, Michael? Yeah, that's great. That's great. Glenn, so does it set out a prima facie tax fraud case from your experience as a prosecutor? Is is there, Are there weaknesses in the Manhattan DA uh, theory of the prosecution that, that Asha has just laid out before us? So, Michael, I only wish that when I was a prosecutor, I had a case with evidence that was this strong. Uh, beyond a prima facie case, there is evidence beyond a reasonable doubt. You don't need to prove any case to a scientific or mathematical certainty, but boy, this one is pretty close. Um, so I would love to be the prosecutor on this case. And I look at that 24-page indictment. I've read it backwards and forwards. I understand at least 75% of it. I was more of a violent crime and RICO prosecutor in D.C. But, you know, when you read it, I mean, there's so much there for the average juror to love regarding Alan Weisselberg's culpability, right? You have a 15-year criminal scheme, as Asha said. This is a systematic pattern and practice of criminality by the Trump organization and its chief financial officer. When you read some of the details, it's pretty infuriating. I mean, I have to pay my taxes. You all have to pay your taxes. Alan Weisselberg, you know, he was trying to hide all this off the books compensation so he didn't have to pay. Let's put that another way. He criminally evaded federal taxes to the tune of $550,000, state taxes in excess of $100,000, and New York City taxes to the tune of a quarter of a million dollars. And you know what? When you read the indictment, even Alan Weisselberg's tax preparer flipped on him, right? Because the indictment says he lied to his tax preparer about whether he was or was not a New York City resident. How do you think all of the New York City residents who land in the jury box are going to take to Alan Weisselberg, stealing a quarter of a million dollars from them? They're going to convict him in a New York minute. The other thing is there are two unnamed bad actors in the indictment who got the same kind of corrupt compensation and presumably criminally evaded taxes in the same dang way that Alan Weisselberg did. Who are those two people? Well, who else is high up enough in the Trump organization? Who else is so firmly entrenched in Donald Trump's inner circle that they might have enjoyed the same criminal perks that Alan Weisselberg enjoyed? We don't know, but we will. And then there's an unindicted co-conspirator. We don't know who it is, but what we do know is the controller of the organization, Jeffrey McConney, who is really just below Alan Weisselberg and probably knows where all the financial bodies are buried, just like Weisselberg does. He went into the New York grand jury. He therefore cannot be indicted. He has immunity under the laws of the state of New York. He is obviously giving it up and he is... According to CNN reporting, he is the unindicted co-conspirator. Alan Weisselberg is dead and stinking in this case. And that's why probably he's being jettisoned from some 40 positions with the Trump organization and its various you know, nefarious little LLCs. And it, it looks like the Trump organization is trying to nudge him toward the undercarriage of a bus which could be a very bad thing for Alan Weisselberg, but it could be an even worse thing for the Trump organization and Donald Trump because it could drive him into the open arms of, of prosecutors who want him as a cooperating witness. So I just want to make sure that we understand something, which is, and maybe Asha, you can take this up, or Glenn, if you want. Don Jr., Eric Jr., Eric Trump, others have said, this is just a fringe benefits case. We hear, we hear that a lot. It's a fringe benefits payroll tax case. Nobody would ever bring a case like this. They are targeting um, Donald Trump and his organization for political reasons. What say you to this notion that this is just fringe benefits and should have been dealt with civilly, um, not criminally? Well, their own books belie that claim. Um, you know, fringe benefits means that you're getting a salary and that you may have some perks that are being given to you on the side. Um, this, these, based on their own internal books, was intended to be part of his salary. They aren't fringe benefits. Um, you know, if he was being paid, I think it was something 
I don't, I forget the actual amount, maybe like $900,000 or something in, uh, you know, salary. There was, you know, some percentage of that, which was officially given to him in the salary. And then the other part down to the penny, which was being accounted for in all of these other ways. Also, these were not necessarily company expenses. I mean, this was a personal vehicle, a Mercedes, uh, for his own personal use. It's, it wasn't a company car, which I think is what uh, Don Jr. claimed at one point. Um, as Glenn mentioned, he was being, you know, he, he was, he had a, an apartment in New York City, um, which would be taxable income. Um, and he was staying there and he was lying about even being a New York uh, City resident. By the way, I lived in New York in New York City as an FBI agent making $40,000 a year, and I paid federal, state, and New York City taxes, which bled me dry. So I can tell you, you know, when you're struggling on uh, salaries like that and paying your fair share of taxes, um, I completely agree with Glenn that there is not going to be a jury that is going to have a whole lot of sympathy for this. But but to answer your question, Michael, I don't think there's any realistic way that you could, that, that there is a fringe benefit defense here, um, maybe in the court of public opinion, but certainly not in a court of law. So one thing, Glenn, that, that also arises, and I think, Asha, thank you, the, 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 the way I think the structure of it worked was he had a $980,000 salary, which was fixed. And then they would pay him with these cars, garage fees, school tuition for his grandchildren, and they would deduct it from the 980000 So these weren't additive um, to his salary. These were deducted off of his salary. He was not going to earn more than that. And that money which was deducted was not reported as taxable income by him or by the Trump organization. So that's where you're smoking spreadsheet where they kept a, a record of every penny deducted from the 980,000 um, was really salary disguised um, in, in another form. Yeah, this, this is not fringe benefits. This is not the boss giving you a case of nice liquor at holiday time, or you know what, go use the corporate condo in Orlando for free for a week. All right. We can argue about the tax consequences of those fringe benefits. This was a systematic criminal scheme to defraud in the first degree, which is the lead charge in the indictment for which Weisselberg is facing probably an aggregate max of 15 years in prison, because even though there are 15 criminal charges, they would likely all run concurrent to one another. So he's probably facing 15 years. Of course, if he's convicted, he won't get 15 years. Um, but, you know, no, these are not fringe benefits. This is not small financial potatoes. This is big ticket, systemic and systematic criminal fraud by the Trump organization and its chief financial officer. So the last question on this, because I think this horse has been has been beaten dead, as they, they say. One thing that struck me interesting in the in the um, indictment was that there was this consulting fees payment component to this. Asha, Asha, do you want to lay that out a little bit? And then I want to ask the follow-up question of, is Ivanka Trump, who has been reported to receive consulting fees um, in the same manner that Wasserberg did, vulnerable un under the same theory of, of prosecution? So if either of you want to just talk through this consulting fees aspect of the indictment, that'd be appreciated. Yeah, and um, Glenn can jump in because I'm not, you know, a tax or business expert, but my understanding is that uh, some of the compensation that Weiselberg was receiving was in the form of consulting fees. Now, businesses often hire consultants, which are typically outside the organization. They have some expertise to help, you know, guide some of the decisions. He was receiving these consulting fees um, while he was also an employee of the company, which um, my and I think the IRS definition for consulting is that there has to be an arm's length relationship between the consultant and the business. How does this benefit them both? Well, what what this allows uh, e each party to do on the Trump uh, organization side, it allows them to, to deduct this amount as a business expense, 
um, you know, a cost of operating the, the business as opposed to, you know, again, a payroll expense on which they would have to pay payroll taxes. And then on Weiselberg's side, if he's receiving a consulting fee, then he gets to claim that he's self-employed and he can really shelter a lot of that into, for example, a, a self-employment retirement plan, an SEP. And that, again, shields it from uh, tax liability. So, again, this is kind of evade. This like a little uh, a, a way that they've set this up to allow uh, both parties to evade taxes. And I think uh, to, to your other question um, the New York Times investigation, which looked at, you know, some 15, 20 years of Trump's tax returns, uh, found that they had been engaging in a similar pattern with Ivanka, who was being paid consulting fees to the tune of, you know, $775,000, again, while she was also an employee of the business that was paying the consulting fee. Um, so, you know, it, I don't know if they, you know, duplicate themselves and, and uh you know, or, or have dual personalities or something, but it, it's incredibly shady and I can't imagine um, the IRS uh, going for that. So Glenn, there's a question in, in the, the chat, which asks what if you, you raised the question of whether Weisselberg, now that the Trump organization has cut him out from 40 subsidiary companies, they, they, they seem to be creating the probability of blaming Weisselberg as a renegade employee for doing all of this on his own. And uh, the Trump organization is shocked, shocked um, that, that this was uh, occurring. The, the question is, um, what testimony might Weisselberg have that could incriminate, well, Trump personally and, and the Trump organization? What, what, why would he be an important witness? Oh, probably everything Donald Trump said to Alan Weisselberg over the history of their relationship is incriminating. And we all know that somewhat famously, Donald Trump doesn't communicate in writing, you know, an old mob tactic, right? Because it's easier to prove if it's in your emails or your written notes or your text messages. So, you know, one of the big ticket questions, Michael, is do the New York prosecutors want Weisselberg or do they need Weisselberg? to take down Trump. I happen to believe as an old prosecutor that they want him, but they don't need him. I base that on a couple of things. They have the controller, the unindicted co-conspirator, if the reporting is accurate, Jeffrey McConney, who probably knows almost as much as Weisselberg, not as much, but almost as much. And, you know, I, I don't want to jump into um, another topic, but when you read some of what's coming out of Michael Wolf's book, and you realize Donald Trump sat down with Michael Wolf, who had already written a scorched earth book that made him look like garbage. And Donald Trump did it all over again. How reckless is Donald Trump in his decisions about what to communicate and who to communicate it with? Don't tell me that Donald Trump was super circumspect and only shared his criminal scheme with Alan Weisselberg. Really? I am sure Donald Trump ran his mouth and bragged about how he was getting over on the IRS in the state of New York and the city of New York with this criminal scheme to defraud to any number of people. And now it's all going to come home to roost. So I think they want Weisselberg. I don't happen to believe they need Weisselberg to make a criminal case against Donald Trump. All right. Well, we'll see. Turning to the next topic is um, the January 6th events. And, and Glenn, maybe can you start us off by giving us sort of a thumbnail view of where things stand in these prosecutions and what the nature of the prosecutions that are being brought? This is really your sweet spot in, in some respect. Yeah, and it's all my friends and former colleagues who are the prosecutors on that case, including so many of my former homicide prosecutors, many of whom I tried their first murder cases with. Um, so I have complete confidence in the team that is investigating the insurrection at the U.S. Attorney's Office. And frankly, I always have confidence in the FBI, regardless of the team. I had the incredible good fortune of working the largest RICO case with the Washington field office in the 90s into the early 2000s when we investigated, indicted and tried in three separate RICO cases not separate related because we had so many members that we 
indicted, um, working with the FBI to put that violent crime case together, which was pre 9-11 and then missions sort of changed. But listen, the FBI is on top of it. The U.S. Attorney's Office is on top of it. And what I see is exactly what I would expect to see. We have 500 plus insurrectionists, Donald Trump's foot soldiers who were directed to attack the Capitol by Donald Trump, by Mo Brooks, by Rudy Giuliani and others. They plainly and inarguably incited this insurrection. You just give the words their ordinary meaning. Go have trial by combat. Go stop the steal. In other words, stop an action word, the certification of the results. I mean, it, it, again, give me 30 minutes in front of a D.C. jury and Trump and Giuliani and Roe Brooks are done. We just have to have the political will to bring the charges against the big fish. But right now, what they're doing is they're still on the bottom rung of the ladder. The foot soldiers who and, and, and they're locking them up to the tune on average of two to three a day. And there are lots more of arrests coming. Right. And we're beginning to see conspiracy charges. And Michael and, and Asha, I know you, you all will appreciate this. I got so excited. I was like a little junior prosecutor when I saw my friends use the word spoke. The, the insurrectionists are spokes in the criminal wheel. We know that means. That's not a reckless or a careless word. They're working on a hub and spoke conspiracy. This is not a mafia conspiracy where you have the mob boss and the consigliere over here and the underbosses and the lieutenants and the foot soldiers. This is a hub and spoke conspiracy. And all those insurrectionists are connected to the hub. And the hub is a great, big, ugly, orange, you know, unpatriotic hub, Donald Trump. And they, those spokes don't have to intersect with one another. They all connect to the hub, Donald Trump. This is a custom-made hub-and-spoke conspiracy case. And they're working their way up. I would expect the next people, they're looking at everything right now, including members of Congress who may have criminal culpability. We don't know yet, but for giving reconnaissance missions the day before and the, and the days leading up to January 6th, they're giving, you know, constituents slash future insurrectionists reconnaissance missions of the Capitol, right? Josh Hawley's out there inspiring them all. That's probably not criminal, but it warrants investigation. Ted Cruz and the rest of these knuckleheads, I'm sure they're being looked at now. And I'm also sure that the U.S. Attorney's Office and the FBI is looking at the organizers, the funders, and the insiders. But those people at the top will be the last indictment to drop. That's how we investigate a conspiracy case. And Asha, you've been an investigator on a conspiracy case. So what's going on from your point of view? There's been a lot of writing that <clears throat> there has been prosecutions against low-level people, but the organizers, and Glenn has given us an explanation for why we haven't gotten to the organizers, but the organizers haven't been indicted because of the possibility, and I'll let you address this, and it's a theory, the possibility that many of the organizers were either undercover FBI agents or paid FBI informants, and therefore they're not being indicted because, in fact, they were part of the planning of the insurrection it itself. That, that is a common theme that I hear a lot on left and right media. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't really understand uh, that that theory, but just in in terms of the investigation, um, we need to remember that this is, from what I understand, the largest investigation that uh, has been undertaken by the FBI and that 55 of 56 field offices are involved. Um, the FBI is decentralized, which means that even though the investigation, the central investigation, the umbrella, whatever it's called at this point, um, is being handled by Washington Field, when there are uh, subjects or evidence or anything that needs to be collected from, say, another jurisdiction, they'll send out leads to the, that field office. And then agents from that field office go and do that segment of the investigation and report back. So it's... Um, you know, it, it it's kind of a, a tentacle-like thing that, that spreads out uh, among all the agents across the country. And this also takes time because they have to gather all this. They have to do the interviews. They have to get, you know, get the evidence and then uh, bring it back. 
Um, so to me, it's not surprising, as Glenn said, that the initial charges will be for things that are quite, you know, obvious and, you know, uh, speak for themselves, right? Like trespass <laughs> or uh, being, you know, have illegal possession of a weapon or whatever it is that they've identified. Um, when you start getting into these higher order crimes where you need to prove things like that there was an agreement, that there was organization, that there was planning, those are going to require, you know, much more intrusive investigative tactics to get things like communications and, and those type of things, which, which is going to take time. And you're going to be using the people that you're getting at the bottom to get to the top. The hub and spoke idea is, I think, really important because it's also the way that uh, kind of traditionally the way that these militia and white nationalist groups operate. Um, you know, if you go back to the 70s and look at these investigations of um, white power groups, things like the order going up to the Oklahoma City bombing, you know, they use as their paradigm, their framework um, is really based on this racist novel called the Turner Diaries. OK, this is sort of their manual, their operating manual. But that talks about creating individual cells that really are communicating with each other, but that are kind of going towards this higher goal, you know, and they're, they're anti-government, um, you know, they're, they're racist, um, but they're not necessarily, uh, all coordinating with each other. So I think that it makes sense that that is, uh, how this could have been structured, um, and that things like the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, you know, were sort of acting with a common purpose, but maybe, you know, not necessarily, uh, you know, coordinating with each other in, in like the top-down way that, um, Glenn mentioned, you know, might be in the mafia. So I think that's uh, a really interesting observation. As a, as far as informants go, I mean, I'm not really sure what 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 this conspiracy theory is. I mean, it's not uncommon for the FBI to have informants in organizations that have criminal uh, goals um, because they have to ha know what's going on on the inside to know when um, you know the planning has moved into the conspiracy and planning phase. Um, that's how they get information. Um, I, I think the theory seems to be that the FBI was the one orchestrating this through their informants. And I can assure you that that's not the case. Right. That's that the, the theory is just that I mean, we've heard it from Tucker Carlson and we've had, you know, um, the likes of when Greenwald, um, who I quite like, um, suggest the possibility that, some of the actions on January 6th may have been at the instigation of um, the informants or the undercovers and that the government, therefore, you heard that mantra a lot, Glenn, on MSNBC, uh, the, uh, when they were reporting on the Fox coverage, that the government was responsible for this action. The government caused this action. It wasn't um, the people who were invited there um, by, by the president. Well, interestingly, Michael, one could argue that the government caused this action because Donald Trump was the inciter in chief. He was the president and he stood there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when people say um, he may have a defense, either a First Amendment mm -hmm. defense, which he doesn't have because his words incited imminent violent conduct, or, um, you know, he might have some other defense to inciting this insurrection. You know, I, I think you can assess the words kind of for yourself and give them their common meaning. The other thing that people, and I'm not trying to get us off track, but when you mention people who want to accuse the government of attacking its own people, that is what Donald Trump has been doing by and large during the four years of his, his presidency. So I, I understand that that argument might resonate with some people. But Donald Trump set up this attack on the Capitol. And when people say, well, but corrupt intent, criminal mens rea is so hard to prove. I say nonsense. I did it for 30 years inside courtrooms. And I never once had a defendant say before he committed the crime or she committed the crime. By the way, by the way, my intent is corrupt and I'm about to do something in violation of the laws. That's not how you prove somebody has criminal intent or corrupt mens rea. It's so easy to prove in my estimation against Donald Trump because he launched the attack from a platform 
of fraud. That helps provide the corrupt intent. He lied to his foot soldiers. He said, your vote has been stolen. Your president has been taken away from you. Now get down the street and stop it. Stop it dead in its tracks. Because he launched the attack from a platform of fraud, it makes his criminal intent all the more obvious and more readily provable in court. Asha, do you agree? Is, it, is, is there a prosecutable case against the, the speakers at, at Lafayette Park there before the insurrectionists head down to, to the Capitol? I mean, I tend to think the bar might be higher um, only because here you have the speech that is also overlapping with political speech. And I think you get into a really hairy area there. It's not that I don't think it's provable, um, but I think that for the Department of Justice to go after something like this, they are going to want a slam dunk. Um, and I don't know that it's, you know, they don't want, they're not going to charge the president of the United States or, you know, the people in the inner circle and then go and lose. Cause that would be like the worst possible scenario. Um, so I think what's key here and Glenn mentioned this is, you know, the, is the pattern, um, of speech leading up to January 6th. It's not just the speech on January 6th. And I think the impeachment managers did a really good job of putting that together of saying this was, you know, a slow, uh, you know, putting the dry tinder there and then the, the lighting the fuse on, on that day. But again, um, you know, I mean, I teach a class and I teach a case in my class. I think it's USV Raman, which is the blind sheet case. And it was a seditious conspiracy, um, you know, where he's inciting his followers and he has a first amendment defense and the, the second circuit kind of, uh, you know, they eventually say, yes, this can be seditious conspiracy and, and, uh, inc- I don't know if it was incitement, but I think they were discussing, but it was, it had to do with specific instructions and things like that. So I don't know. I think, um, it would really depend on what they're bringing and if they have the political will to bring it, because we don't talk about that often. Um, and I just don't know whether this, Justice Department is really ready to go down that road or if they are just going to let the states, whether it's New York or Fulton County in, in Georgia, kind of just take the baton just to avoid the political minefield um, that's going. Now, people like Roger Stone and things like that, I really do think are going to get um, ensnared in this. I, I just have a little bit I'm a little bit more um, not less optimistic that that is going to be Trump on the incitement stuff, maybe on tax stuff, but I'm just not sure about that. So uh, I, I just made a note in my calendar, bring Glenn and Asha back for part two in, in a month or two uh, or three, and we'll see where, where we stand. The, the next um, topic that, that is of interest um, to me is this lawsuit that Trump has filed against um, Facebook and Twitter and Google slash um, YouTube. And um, Glenn, would you take us through that lawsuit? I know you have strong opinions about its um, viability. Yeah, I I seem to have strong opinions about everything these days. And you know what's funny, Michael, as a footnote, I grew up in an apolitical household with a pop who was a high school football coach. All I cared about growing up was football, boxing, wrestling, the things I loved, drinking too much beer. Um, I hate to sound like a uh, Supreme Court justice, but um, and I and I and for 30 years as a federal prosecutor, first as an Army JAG and then as a DOJ, D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office prosecutor, I was an apolitical person, not just because of the Hatch Act. So I wasn't permitted to engage in political activity that suited me fine because I didn't engage in political activity. I'm just kind of a law and order guy and a fairness and decency guy and a justice guy. And so when I see what Donald Trump has done to the nation and what I saw what Bill Barr did to the Department of Justice, yes, I went on my own little rampage for what it's worth because of how they have debased the rule of law and how they have really taken one big step in the direction of destroying our destroying our democracy. And that's why I get up, get up every morning and scream about how justice matters. Um, so with respect to this lawsuit, yeah, it's kind of laughable when I read that Donald Trump is suing Twitter, Google slash YouTube and Facebook for violating his First Amendment free speech rights. 
I, I double checked the First Amendment. All right, I'm not a huge First Amendment guy. The fourth, fifth, sixth, and eighth are kind of my favorites as a criminal law guy. Um, but I double checked to see if it had been amended to say Twitter shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. You know, Google shall. No, it's still Congress. It still just kind of applies to government conduct. The government cannot abridge our free speech rights. Private actors can basically do anything they want, and it will almost never rise to a constitutional violation or a deprivation of one's free speech. But Michael, what we saw the minute he filed that suit in court, and whoever these lawyers are will probably face the same kind of consequences as Rudy Giuliani faces for lying in furtherance of Donald Trump's efforts to overturn the election as found by New York, five New York Supreme Court justices, and then as sort of followed up by the D.C. Appellate Court by suspending Rudy's law license. As we saw in the sanctions hearing yesterday, I think it was, time is, has been suspended now for several years, um, with the Kraken lady and the rest of them who are all likely going to be sanctioned. These latest lawyers will probably end up being sanctioned too. And the thing is, the minute they dropped that lawsuit or they filed that lawsuit, Trump started fundraising. Look at the lawsuit I just filed. Send me money. How many times will his base be duped? I mean, it's really only the gullible, I assume, who continue to send Donald Trump money. And I guess maybe he's going to build the wall and have Mexico pay for it again. I watched the CPAC speak. Um, it's insane. It's a baseless suit, frivolous suit, suit in bad faith. And the only question is, never having been a civil litigator, do the lawyers for Google, Twitter and Facebook get together, collude lawfully and say, let's let this go to discovery so we can make Donald Trump sit for a deposition? Or do they simply move to dismiss it because it fails to state a claim upon which relief can be granted? I I'm interested in that more than I'm interested in anything else in the suit. So, Asha, the, the, as Glenn lays it out, to file a lawsuit against these private companies and alleging a First Amendment violation implies that they are state actors, that the, the, the state, they are acting as the state in denying the Trump class its free speech rights. But I think that and, and I'd like you to talk to it. The, the, the theory is that because Facebook and them receive benefit from the government, protection under Section 230 of the Internet laws or other um, antitrust um, protections, that they somehow morphed into, into state actors. And, and that's sort of the, the theory of how they get to file this <clears throat> they get to file this suit. Have you, have you looked at it in those terms? And the, the argument that because they derived the benefit from the government, they are thereby the government. I, my trash gets picked up every Monday. And so I'm deriving a benefit from, from the DC government. I'm just wondering whether now I should worry about um, abridging people's First Amendment rights. Yeah, it doesn't work like that. Um, because Congress might exercise some aspect of its you know, Article One powers to to regulate or protect particular industries do not transfer do not transform those industries into into state actors. Um, so, as Glenn said, I think that on the First Amendment front, um, this is uh, this is pretty clear cut. I just want to add on the. I mean, just since we're talking about liability, I do think that some of these fundraising grifts might be potential sources of liability for Trump because. Um, they are these these are kind of the lawsuits themselves are becoming parts of a scheme to defraud. Um, and we saw this after uh, the election where there was a lot of fundraising to, you know, fight to, for these election lawsuits. Um, and the way that these fundraising uh, emails and um, things were set up was that people when they they might say, OK, I'm going to donate five dollars. And they didn't realize that as a part of that, they had automatically opted in to having double that amount taken out you know, twice a week. I mean, it was like some kind of 
it was consumer fraud, basically. Um, and, you know, people ended up in like tens of thousands of dollars in debt without realizing it because their their credit cards were being charged. So I just want to put out there that I foresee that becoming, um, you know, a potential source of liability. I don't know if it will go all the way to Trump, but we already saw that with the Steve Bannon stuff with, you know, fundraising for the wall and things like that. Um but back to uh, Facebook, yeah, they're not state actors. Um, I think, as we discussed before the podcast, Michael, I think there are good arguments to be made that uh, these platforms do uh, have a certain um, disproportionate market share that allows them to exercise a certain amount of you know power in the same way that uh, you know at the turn of the cent- at the turn of the twentieth century you had um, these essentially oligarchs, right? The capitalists, the, the Vanderbilts and, and um, Carnegie's and, and Rockefellers, and eventually they needed to be regulated. So I do, I think that, you know, it's not to say that they should have just free reign to do whatever they want, but the First Amendment is not going to be the, the way that they're going to be checked because they're not state actors. The thing that's interesting, Glenn, to me, is that when you put the lawsuit aside, and I, I think we're, we can have consensus that the the argument that Trump's First Amendment rights <clears throat> have been violated sort of turns the uh, issue upside down. The First Amendment doesn't apply to Trump in in this context. The issue, though, is a complicated one for me, legally and politically, when you get outside of the Trump um, lawsuit, which is to say. I worry greatly about the Facebook, Twitter, Google, YouTube monopoly, as, as Asha described it. They are, they are social communication monopolies determining for our democracy who gets to speak and who doesn't get to speak. And it's interesting to me, too, that the speech that under their bylaws, whatever their guidance um, is, the speech that they feel they have the power to exclude from their platforms can be constitutionally protected speech. So it's not as if they are banning words that are criminally prosecutable words. They're banning thought and speech. And, And I analogize it in my mind to the telephone company, and whether or not we have to begin to think of these companies as public utilities, in, in, in a sense, um, who don't get the right to curate what is said. They may not be liable for what's said, but they don't get the right to curate who comes on and who doesn't come on based on their internal guidelines. I think it's very dangerous especially for the left, because the left has always, whether it's been the sedition laws and the prohibit, prohibition about mailing the masses or other things during World War I period, they are the ones who always get screwed, it seems to me, when there's censorship of this sort. So I've raised a political question, and I don't know if you feel yeah. comfortable with it, Glenn. But... I, I, I do, in part because you um, suggested I read up on the public utility suit being brought by the governor of Ohio and some other things. And I'm really glad you did because I hadn't been focusing on that now. um, And I I think it's dangerous, not just to the left. I think it's dangerous to the right. I think it's dangerous to the center because whoever is in power at the moment, you know, will be trying to suppress certain people and certain speech. Now I agree with Asha that the first amendment is really not the issue when it comes to how, Twitter and Google and Facebook are behaving, but it is a huge issue, as you say, Michael, because they have the power to, you know, ban speech that they believe is in violation of their policy, however they may define that or change it at their own will or whim. So I, when I read up on the public utility suit, I mean, I think that's a really interesting concept. If Google can monopolize the flow of communication and they, it, it certainly looks like, you know, if somebody's Googling something, Google is kind of monopolizing it. Now you can say, well, 
but it's their decision. They could use Bing. Well, yeah, that is an argument for another day. But if they really are monopolizing the information flow, are they acting as a public utility? Is it more like the electric company or like Ma Bell, you know, or the gas company? Or is it more like public transportation? All of these things are kind of public utilities and they can't discriminate using the broad sense of that word, the way Google is discriminating or making decisions about the information flow. So I actually think that's a really interesting um, question. And I think it's closely akin to the monopoly question, right? Should we be using antitrust laws to go after the Googles of the world? The Facebooks, I'm not so sure. And I read the article about a federal suit being dismissed against Facebook for being a monopoly. And maybe the federal government will retool and try again. Um, but, you know, when you think about our antitrust laws, and I'm no expert, um, you know, what is the one example we all use about the great success of the antitrust laws? Ma Bell, 40 years ago. Maybe there have been other great successes, but it seems like the first step is to legislate some modern era antitrust laws and then see if you can actually implement them and enforce them and win the in inevitable court challenges that come down. Because as Joe Biden just said when he released his competition executive order, um, you know, he said capitalism without competition isn't capitalism, it's exploitation. And I do feel like we're all being exploited by the Googles, by the Bezoses, by the, you know, as Bezos and Musk and Branson all, you know, arm wrestle to see who has the biggest rocket. It's, you know, a little bit of financial obscenity there in my book, but what do I know? Um, but no, I think both the public utility uh, approach and the, you know, antitrust approach are frankly things that government, the government should be undertaken, undertaking, because we don't really have capitalism anymore. My pop's capitalism is dead. There are no two hardware stores on Main Street, honestly, competing with one another for, for customers, for business. That's, that's long gone. So we have to realize it's long gone and decide what are we as a, as a people and as a government going to do about it? Can I, can I jump in here, too, to add to that? I mean, Michael, I think the telephone analogy is not quite the one. Um, a telephone is a two-way communication between two private parties. Um, the, what I think the social media platforms do is more akin to a public square. Um, and a town square, uh, public green, where you have speaker's corner, for example, this is, this is the analogy we use in my, in my disinformation class. Um, as you know, when a government actor uh, is regulating the town square, they have to be content neutral. They can't, for example, uh, give the speaker in one corner um, a, a megaphone or, you know, a, a sound system to drown out the, the speaker on the other square. Um, they can't, uh, you know, put a big tent over one speaker so nobody sees them. And so what you have is um, it's not so much the competition, you know, that Facebook doesn't have a competition for other people to go. It's that within the, the town square that Facebook or Twitter has created, they they are able to control whose voices are heard, and they are therefore distorting um, the public conversation. And the marketplace of ideas, which we say, you know, the good ideas will rise to the top, the bad ideas will go to the bottom, the market is distorted because what you have is a player who's determining whose voices are heard and who's not, and it is based on their revenue model, which in turn, favors extreme voices because extreme positions drive engagement. Engagement is what advertisers want and makes them money. So it's it's a whole, I think, um, in addition, I would say to antitrust and public utility, I would say we should also look at, for example, how we have uh, approached tobacco companies um, where their bottom line is really at odds with the public good. And, you know, where can we create incentives that make them act more in favor of, uh, you know, particular values we want to maximize? In the case of tobacco, public health, in the case of social media companies, um, democratic deliberation, which allows, you know, for, for real marketplace of ideas, not one that is determined by their secret algorithm. Yeah. And, you know, what's interesting about that is um, one of the attorneys who is on this 
uh, Trump lawsuit is John Cole, a friend, Greta Van Susteren's husband. And um, John was one of the tobacco lead attorneys. And he's bringing that sort of sort of argument to the case. I still think he doesn't prevail because of the state actor, but in some sense, kudos to them in, in some abstract way for, for having us now think about the issues of the monopoly of ideas that these three behemoths um, control without, you know, with complete protection under, under Section 230 of the Communication Decency, Communications Decency Act, they are held harmless for any lawsuits by any content they um, allow to be disseminated. There seem to be just like a, a, a switch. And if, you, and if I say something incendiary, you can sue me, but you can't sue Twitter for posting my incendiary comment. That's Section 230 protection. And they're saying, wait a second, wait a second. We have to rethink the constitutionality or the propriety of, of those protections now that the internet is no longer in its infancy, which is what it was trying to protect, but is rather run by a couple of oligarchs. Yeah, and one more industry that's similar uh, that I would throw in here, the gun manufacturers who also have uh, blanket protection um, against liability. So yeah, um, I think there's a lot of different analogies that that could work. And I think we'll see as time goes on these different theories that are that you know, and let's just remember, these platforms want to do anything to avoid regulation. So the minute that there starts to be public outcry or Congress might start moving in that direction, they'll start taking you know action like, okay, we're going to kick Trump off. But Relying on them to police themselves in the benefit of the public good is, in my view, a really bad idea. So, so those who look at Donald Trump with horror or dis- dislike um, and think, what a great thing that he's been banned from Twitter, that we don't have to listen to his 540 a.m. rants, what this lawsuit asks us to do is think long and hard about whether or not it's Donald Trump or you or me or anybody else. Is this good for our society? So it's a good question. Again, part two, when you guys come back, we're going to, we're going to have a, 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 an informed discussion on uh, the next phases of this. But Glenn, I'd like to turn to another thing that has gotten you um, riled up. It's so, it's so, Hard to get you riled up. I just don't understand, you know, how these things keep flowing so so quickly. Can you talk a little bit about Eugene Carroll? She's the woman who was an advice columnist who alleged that um, Donald Trump raped her in the in the mid nineties, and then um, in about two thousand and nineteen, he denied the allegations, saying that she's not my type. Um, which is quite a defense to an allegation of, of rape. Um, and, and, and she sued him um, for, for defamation. And one of the things that um, is, is interesting and which has gotten you riled up is the request by the Justice Department to intervene in the, in the case under the Federal Tort Claims Act. So maybe you could talk a little bit about the the Gene Carroll case, the intervention, and then the the, the underlying merit to the, the case itself. Yeah, um, it, it's particularly upsetting um, because you have a, a crime victim. Um, if her allegations are to be believed, and I and I only say that I have no reason to dispute what Miss Carroll has said. Um, and Donald Trump's reaction, quite frankly, makes her allegations more credible. Um, but to have, uh, if if we take her claims at face value, a a sexual assault victim who is, is then re-victimized by the president of the United States using his bully pulpit to defame her, and then is victimized a third time by a Department of Justice exercising its discretion to step in and defend the president, remove him from the suit. And if they remain successful in that endeavor, 
her suit is certain to be dismissed. This is, it, it's, me, go ahead. Can I stop you a second? Just yeah. for the audience, explain in a little bit more granular detail sure. what it means for the Justice Department to intervene under the Federal Tort Claims Act. What does that mean? It doesn't impact her suit necessarily. It depends on, uh, in a sense, the the payer of damages, if there are damages, and the like. So, yeah, let me, I'll, I'll try to break it down to its essence. So there um, was this, the allegation of the sexual assault that Miss Carroll made, and then the president took to the airwaves and press conferences and, you know, his Twitter feed and, and started to defame her, started to say, in essence, when you say I didn't rape her because she's not my type, doesn't that suggest that you have a type, that you are willing to sexually assault? But you know, said all sorts of horrible things about her, mocked her, you know, made fun of her looks. Um, and so E. Jean Carroll promptly brought suit, sued the president for defamation, for lying about her to her detriment, hurting her, you know, uh, her reputation in the community, hurting her financial prospects, defaming her, um, which to my way of thinking breathes additional credibility into the original allegation, because you probably don't sue the president of the United States if you made the whole thing up in the first instance. So so then the Department of Justice, first under Bill Barr, but then more problematically, if that's a word, in my view, under um, Merrick Garland, decided that if a if a government official says something during a press conference, even if it pertains to matters in his personal life, even if it pertains to matters in his personal life before he was elected to office or appointed or hired, even if all of that is true and they are defamatory lies, the Department of Justice will intervene and will basically substitute itself for the president, for the government official who has been sued because government officials do have some immunity against being sued. Frankly, we can argue whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. I think it's a necessary thing, being a 30-year federal government employee. And the example that I use, which I'm sure I borrowed from somebody else, is if you're a postal employee and you're driving your, your postal truck on your designated route and you get into a fender bender during the performance of your official governmental duties within the scope of those duties, we don't want every postman to be sued. We want the government to step in. And say, look, this postman was or postwoman was doing what they were supposed to do. And so we're going to go ahead and help them out in this lawsuit. We're going to take up the defense. So all of that is fine. Here's my problem with it. There is case law that says it had to do with a member of Congress lying at a press conference, calling his wife a terrorist falsely, which is pretty horrific. But the Department of Justice intervened and that was upheld. So the, the, at the bottom of it all, there is federal authority, case law, that says the position Merrick Garland took and the Department of Justice took is supportable. It's a position it can take. But here's my here's my beef with the Department of Justice. It was a discretionary position. They weren't required by any law or precedent or Supreme Court case to take this position. They decided it was the right thing to do to protect the institution and all that kind of garbage. You know, it's really the wrong thing to do in three different ways. And I was so disappointed and deflated when Merrick Garland took this, I think, horrific discretionary position because it signaled that we're not necessarily gonna break from the past. We might see more of the same of the institution protecting rogue politicians or government officials. and. That's why I have a problem with the position taken. Yeah, and Asha, the, the, the way it works, as I understand it, and I'd love to hear your, your take on this, the way it works is that the Justice Department has said that for the purposes of this lawsuit, Donald Trump should be considered an employee of the government, Glenn's uh, postal worker, should be considered an employee of the government, and that his statements fell within the parameters of his employment. That's the predicate, that he's considered an employee and that the statements fell within the parameters of, of his employment and, and as such, 
the, the Justice Department will stand in Trump's place and pay damages if damages are warranted. So that Donald Trump, for his statements, would have to pay nothing because the Justice Department is not going to ask him to compensate them. Uh, that the, this determination that he, the president of the United States, is a regular employee, and that these statements, these defamatory statements, fell within the scope of his employment, I have trouble understanding. Um, as did the district court that 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 ruled against the intervention. Can you talk about it from your perspective a little bit? Um, well, I don't, I don't know the case law that they, you know, I'm not familiar with the background, but as Glenn noted, it, it is, you know, they are kind of basing this on some theory that, that exists. It's not like an out of the blue kind of thing, but I, I am 100% with Glenn on this, that this is not the case that you want to defend that proposition. Um, number one, I think that, you know, the underlying case is a sexual assault allegation, which already involves a power differential. Um, mm-hmm. So I don't think that this is the particular, you know, this isn't uh, a um, kind of a nuisance lawsuit or harassment lawsuit intended to kind of deter, detract the president from his duties. You know, you might see, you might imagine a situation where the president makes a general statement about, you know, I mean, we could totally see this happening, right? Like Biden says something about, you know, Matt Gates, and then Matt Gates, like, so, you know, brings a defamation lawsuit and, you know, then, I mean, there, there are universes where you might say, this proposition is is defensible, but I think a sexual assault allegation where you're already dealing with a power differential and where the intention clearly seems to be to sort of intimidate and bully the victim um, is not the one that I would pick. And not defending that proposition here does not uh, mean that the Department of Justice can never bring it up again. They're, they're, it's not like, you know, they once they concede it that, you know, it, it's over. So this is um, my issue. And I think the other piece here is, you know, to kind of go back to the example I just used. Um, it's it's going on the assumption of the president as an actor who is otherwise observing norms. And again, I think to to defend this with a president who, as Glenn mentioned, used and abused his position to go after people, to go after civilians, to intimidate witnesses, um, you know, that really broke all of the norms of the office in terms of being responsible for uh, just the enormous influence that he has is not where I would want our Department of Justice to um defend this principle. And and Michael, can I do a 10 second follow up? Because Asha found the words that I couldn't find the power differential, because the the very real implication of what the Department of Justice has just done is that a a president can sexually assault somebody in his private life, can then use his bully pulpit of the presidency to mock and defame her to her great detriment. And the Department of Justice will say that's all good by us. We will intervene to try to hold the president harmless. That is some institutional insanity. Yeah. What I what I don't know, and we got to turn the page on this. And if we have a minute, I'd love to ask one last question, but we're, we're over the time limit. Um, I'm not sure that Trump actually ever meets the definition of an employee under the Federal Tort Claims Act. I just don't think of the President of the United States as a regular employee of, of the government. You know, we know in our criminal law prosecutions that the President is less than, um, it's less than clear whether the President is prosecutable for certain certain offenses because of his unique status in our government. So we'll leave aside to, for part two, and we'll come back and see what the appellate court says. The last question I want to ask in, 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 in the moment we have left is if either of you have been following the uh, state of Georgia election interference case um, against Trump, and if you can give us an update on it. If not, we'll save that for part two. And we'll come back to see where where it is. I I have to confess, I know there's a lawsuit um, that's been there's a the case that's being investigated for his interference with the call to Brad Raffsenberger, um, but I don't know what the status of it is. So if either of you uh, can fill us in on that, fine. If you want to say let's take that up in part two, Michael, um, we're done now. I'm happy for that answer too. 
I am not up to speed on the latest developments. Like you, Michael, I know that that, that suit is there. Uh, I, I, I think, I just know with the fact that as they stood probably, you know, as of a few months ago, but nothing. And I, I, I don't know what further evidence needs to be developed beyond a recorded phone call where the president right. says, somebody needs to find me 11,780 votes that fell off the back of a truck so I can wrongfully be declared the winner. Again, 30 minutes in front of a jury, you're guilty of violating Georgia state election laws. For God's sake, somebody indict this man. Well, on that optimistic note, um, I want to thank Asha and Glenn very much for taking their time to be with us on That Said um, with Michael Zeldin uh, this morning. Thank you, guys, both. It was a terrific conversation. I do hope you'll come back for part two because there is so much uh, for us to, to discuss. Absolutely. Anytime. Thanks, Michael. Thank you, guys. That Said is produced by Compro and the Museum of Public Relations. Theme music by Sam Post. Please let us know your thoughts by writing to us at thatsaidzeldin at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. For That Said, I'm Michael Zeldin. credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.